What's holding you back? Is it fear? Not enough money? Most self-confidence, not enough clarity. You know, I want to reflect back a little bit on this special edition of 48 Days Radio today and look at the most common questions that we get. Now, we encourage people to move into new areas of creativity, entrepreneurship, you know, doing your own thing. I mean, we encourage that. And we hear again and again and again the same reasons, the same thing. So I'm going to address those today in this edition of 48 Days Radio. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I'm reflecting back for a couple reasons. One is right here at the end of the year, the end of a decade, it's a good time to do that. Well, the end of the decade reminds us of the common questions that people have been submitting. It also reminds me, this is kind of a special occasion for me. It was 10 years ago, right now, that I first started this podcast. I'd been on terrestrial radio for six years here in Nashville. WTN, big flagship radio station. You know that at the time had Dave Ramsey, Rush Limbaugh, and others like that. But it had been six years there. And then I discovered this magic thing called podcasting. Had a young tech kid approach me and said, hey, Dan, we could put segments of your radio show up on this thing that Apple has that would let people in other states listen to this. We had a good audience for the radio show, three states being Tennessee, um, Alabama, up into Kentucky. I mean, we had a lot of loyal listeners. We experimented putting segments up on the podcast platform. And all of a sudden I started hearing from people from Norway and Brazil and England and New Zealand and Australia and Bangladesh and places I never heard of. You got to be kidding me. I'm finished with the radio. I love this thing called podcasting. So I started that 10 years ago this month, actually it was on December 9th, 2009, put the first segment up and I said, I'm going to do this every week. And I've been pretty faithful in a word not pretty faithful, exactly faithful to my word. Every single week, I've never missed a week in 10 years, never done a replay. It's always been new content. So it's been kind of a, uh, it became a goal at some point in there. I thought, well, I'm going to make this a pretty good run. You know, the average podcast does seven podcasts, seven, and then they're gone. They get it up and, you know, six weeks, nobody's listening, no feedback. They think, yeah, this thing doesn't work. Well, that's not the way to approach it. I always go into something saying I'm going to do this for a year without ever looking back, without second guessing myself at all. Well, I've done that. Thank you for being part of this audience. I love this format and love the way that we can connect and discuss things together that can benefit all of us. So today I'm also looking back at the most common questions that we get regarding people being stuck. What's holding you back? Now, these are the things that we get. I'm lacking clarity. I don't have enough money. I'm low in self-confidence. I have a lot of fear. You know, the fear of loss is greater than the hope of gain. Well, another one, I just procrastinate. And then a handful of those. But I'm just going to walk through those. This won't be a long episode today, but I just want to walk through in an encouraging way to give you some tips to overcome anything that it is that may be an obstacle, anything that you see that's holding you back. I want to address that a little bit. So let's just jump right into these. 
I'm lacking clarity on what would be a viable opportunity for me. Here's the deal. 85% of the process of getting clarity comes from looking inward. If you want to be confident about choosing a career, a business opportunity, whatever it is out there, look inward first. Don't just do what Uncle Harry did or the guy down the street or here's somebody that did something online, so I'm going to do that. Don't try to just model what somebody else did if it doesn't fit you. The real key is, does it fit you? Talked to a gentleman this week and his wife is involved in one of the direct sales organizations or multi-level marketing. Well, it's a horrible fit for her. She's kind of shy and introverted. It doesn't matter how great the product is, how great the company is, the business model doesn't fit her. So you want to do that. 85% of the process comes from looking inward. And you know, I give you things to look at all the time, like your skills and abilities, your personality traits, your dreams and passions. Those are things that will tell you what kind of a business opportunity is going to fit you. Then you've got the 15% and you ought to be able to come up with a long list of things. But if you, as an example, are introverted and shy. That doesn't mean that you can't have your own business, incidentally. A lot of times we assume that, well, if you're going to do something on your own, you have to be that hard driving in your face, aggressive, opinionated, hard selling. No, you don't at all. You can be very introverted and shy. You can do something where you have systems that work for you to create a very profitable business where you never really see or talk to the customer. We have a lot of people in the 48 Days Eagles community who are doing businesses like that, and we profile them to give encouragement to others who may have the same kind of personal traits. So again, your skills and abilities, your personality traits, your dreams and passions, start with what you love absolutely every time. That's going to be my encouragement. I told somebody yesterday, I'd rather help you grow dandelions if that's your passion, then try to talk you into being a computer programmer because we know there are opportunities there. No, focus on what it is you love. There are many ways we can turn that into something that in fact is profitable. You know, I see a lot of people who have creative skills, people who of course hear those old cliches, you know, artists always starve. Well, they don't. Musicians, sculptors, poets, There's ways to take all of those things and turn them into creative businesses. If in fact, you create that three-legged stool that I talk about often, those three legs being passion, talent, and money. If you have passion and talent, haven't figured out a way way to make money, well, you got a hobby. But there are ways to turn that into something that has an economic engine, really regardless of what it is. Well, not enough money. I mean, that's another biggie. People say, well, I don't have enough money. I'd love to do something on my own, but I don't have enough money. Well, it's a perceived lack of money. And I stress perceived because money is not really what's holding them back. Never. I mean, people think they don't have enough money to take the first steps toward you know, something exciting that they'd like to do. But the problem usually comes back to that fear of failure or lack of knowledge now, I get you know, probably eight to 10 requests a week from people wanting to know how, where to find startup money for new ventures. And yes, you know, getting capital is pretty difficult to find. You can't go to the bank and tell them, hey, I've got this idea for a new game. I'm going to you know, develop this game. I want you to fund it. Give me $50,000 so I can figure out if this is really going to work and if people want it. No, but if that sounds vaguely familiar, you can probably see some ideas that have developed in exactly that same way. Uh, some friends of mine recently developed a game called the Inia Game. 
based on the Enneagram, of course, which is really popular as kind of a personality profile, the Enneagram game. So to develop that, they put up a Kickstarter project. They said, this is what it's going to be like. This is how you would engage with other people. If you like it, you can pre-purchase your game. And a whole lot of people did. They raised, I think it was forty or $50,000. That gave them the money then in advance to go into the production to get it produced, send those games out. And of course, now they've got a format and a lot of publicity to continue selling that very, very successfully. They started essentially with zero capital on their own. That's, that's a great example of how that's done. Now, here's some recent statistics. And I keep pretty much on top of these because it is such a recurring question. It's 26% of business startups didn't require any capital at all. All right, this 26%, right out of the gate, no capital at all, just like the one I just described. 34% need less than $5,000. 9% need between five dollars and $10,000. And then it goes on up from there. So when you hear about these businesses and they're raising venture capital, you know, they need $10 million in venture capital to get it off the ground. Those ideas are extremely rare. Now, what this means, if we back through these numbers here, is that 69% of all new businesses needed less than $10,000 to get started. Now here's the irony. You know, 70% of the people on the street say they'd like to look at starting something on their own, but they don't have the money. 69% of all businesses require less than $10,000. Now I I don't know that there's ever been a business I started that required even $10,000. Most of mine of course are based on information, knowledge, intellectual capital rather than bricks and mortar. So I know it is a little different. If I wanted to start a bowling alley or a service station or a hardware store, sure, that'd be different. But those kind of businesses don't appeal to me for a whole lot of reasons. So the kind of things I do is like, if you take like the Eagles community, I invested probably about a thousand dollars. You know, we got Kajabi and um, Mighty Networks. So we got a couple of software programs to help us formatting that. And then we just started now, I already had an audience of podcast listeners like you all and newsletter subscribers. So we just announced it gently and just started bringing people in. Well, then it's self-funded, having put in just a little bit of money. I mean, I could have after you know, one week taken my initial investment back out again, and it was, it's was it been totally self-funded ever since, requiring no outside capital at all and just growing because it's an idea rather than just being product-based. Well, here's some ways that people do go to look for money. Banks, obviously, one, I already mentioned that. They're not very friendly to the kind of ideas that most of us have these days. They're not in the business of speculating on your idea. They're in the business of avoiding risk. So it's kind of the old deal, you know, they'll give you money if you don't really need it. Meaning if you have $60,000 equity in your house, yeah, they'll give you $50,000 because if you don't pay it back, they're going to take your house. But if you don't have some kind of collateral to cover it, it's not likely that a bank is going to give you money. They're not in the business of risking like that. Well, the Small Business Administration, you mean you may hear about that. Sure, there are some stringent requirements for SBA loans. I mean, it's still a viable way to get money. A lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, but uh, certainly an option out there. You can uh, lease equipment if you want to have a business, what it requires you to have some equipment, you can lease that and um, negotiate 
even office space where there's not a lot of money required up front. Now, those are things that do obligate you over time. You better be careful with those kind of things. I've also seen people who got SBA loans. I had a couple of guys here in the Brentwood area a couple of years ago started a commercial cleaning business. Well, they thought, wow, this is really a gravy train. Everywhere they go, people said, yeah, we want somebody reliable to do our cleaning. So they got a bunch of contracts for that. They got an SBA loan for about a quarter of a million dollars. They both got brand new um, Volvos. Both got brand new Volvos, fancy office space. And in six months, they were broke because in as much as they had the ability to go out and sell the jobs, they had a whole lot of difficulty finding reliable people to fulfill the service that they had provided, that they had promised rather. All right, well, supplier financing, I mean, there's franchising, licensing, distributorships, you know, the venture capital. Yeah, you hear about that, you know, venture capital. Well, there are people out there who have lots of money. Are they eager to just throw that money into a new idea that's not proven? No. I mean, venture capital, I mean, it's going to fund, golly, maybe one and a half percent of new businesses that are being gotten off the ground. They're very, very selective. And what they're going to look at is not as much even the business idea as the person. They're going to, what has this person done? You know, what kind of a reputation does this person have? What have they already done to prove themselves? I mean, that's what they're going to be looking at more than the idea itself. Well, another source, the biggest source 80% of new ventures are started with this source of money. What do you think it is? It's what we call love money. It's people who know and trust you. I mean, they invest not primarily because they think you have a great idea, but because they love you and believe in you. But now be very careful about rushing out to borrow money from people who know, love, and trust you. It changes the conversations very, very quickly. You know, as Dave Ramsey talks about, you know, the conversation over Thanksgiving dinner is a whole lot different. If you owe somebody sitting across the table from you $50,000, they put in your business and they look across the room and you got a brand new iPhone, just paid a thousand dollars. They're thinking, geez, why didn't you pay me back some of the money I gave you? It just changes the dynamics. Not something I'm a big fan of, but that's 80%, 80% of new businesses are funded with what we call love money. Well, if you have energy, ambition, desire, imagination, you will attract money. It'll show up. Money is very, very available. Those are the things that it requires. I'll hit them again. If you have energy, ambition, desire, and imagination, you will attract money. Trust me. Well, let's go on. Number three, lacking self-confidence or fear. How do you get over fear? I mean, sometimes fear becomes almost like a warm blanket. We're so used to it. We kind of wrap ourselves up in it and just stay there. Yeah, it takes a step, initiative to walk out of fear. Reminds me of the little book Julian Smith wrote several years ago called Flinch. And he based it on the principle that every time we do something new that we haven't done before, just before we do it, ooh, we flinch. I mean, if you're up on a zipline platform or bungee cord platform and you're going to, you're going to flinch. He uses an example of 
stepping into a shower with the water turned on co- totally cold. Well, I, I did that. I talked about that so much that I finally said, geez, I got to do that. So I did that. And you know, it's to, to experience that. Yeah, we do that. When you're going to step into a really cold shower, you flinch, then you step in and it's like, oh my God, but it, oh, it's only like a nanosecond. And then you think, wow, that didn't kill me. Yeah, it's kind of refreshing. You know, like stepping under a waterfall out in a woods somewhere. But we are, we do have that instinctual reaction to not step into something that we've done before. Well, guess what? If you don't step into something you've done before, your life is going to stay exactly as it is. So we have to learn how do we move through this? Well, here's some tips to help you move through fear. Convert worry time into study time. Uh, Make sure you you plan to do what is right. I mean, plan your actions rather than waiting to see what happens. Once you plan, be decisive. Make your decision about where you want to be, what you want to do, and then stick with it. And in this one, be careful of listening to other people trying to hold you back. I mean, wow. I mean, I use a story in one of my books about the black crabs where you walk down on the beach in the morning and you start putting crabs in a bucket And pretty soon the crabs are looking around in the bucket thinking, hey, this is not going to end well. I need to get out of here. And so one reaches up, puts his little claw on the edge of the bucket. And just as he's ready to go over the bucket, back out to freedom again, somebody in the bucket pulls him back down in. I mean, we all have people like that in our lives, people that don't want our success to supersede their own. It just is part of the deal. They uh are going to pull us back. So be careful of the people that you hang around. When you're wanting to start something new, the people that you've known for a long time may not be your biggest supporters. You may need to find some new friends, find people who are on the same path as you. Thus, that's why we created the Eagles community for exactly that. So people will cheer you on, hold your arms up when you're weak, so to speak. That's the kind of community that you need to be around. Well, here's some other things, just ways to build your self-confidence. Be a front seater. When you walk into a room, go up and sit in the front. You'll be more alert, pay attention, hear more, not be distracted by other people in the audience. Practice making eye contact with people. I mean, it really relays low self-confidence if you meet somebody and their eyes are just fluttered down or looking around the room. Practice making eye contact. It'll show that people that I'm honest. You can believe what I'm telling you. I'm not afraid. I'm confident, bold, enthusiastic. Here's another one. I love this one. You know, if you go to the mall, you can tell so much about people without ever talking to them at all. Just sit there and watch them. My encouragement is walk 25% faster. It tells people around that you have something important to do. I was with one of my grandkids at the airport recently. We had a long flight delay and I, I told my grandson, just look around. You can tell a lot about a person by just watching them walk by. He was amazed at how quickly he formed opinions of people based on how they walked. Well, you can do the same thing. And you can increase people's positive perception of you by walking faster. Practice speaking up. Our voice tells a lot about us as well. I mean, I've worked with a speech coach to help me keep my voice strong after long periods of talking. I mean, he works with me, he, he'll back me up against a wall, you know, push my shoulders back and say, now talk. Now you're talking from your diaphragm instead of that airy light talking that just comes from your lungs. Smile big. I mean, this is one you, you, you can't be depressed or frustrated if you smile big. In, in the classic little book, The Magic of Thinking Big, David Schwartz says, try to feel defeated and smile big at the same time. You can't. A big smile gives you confidence. 
big smile beats fear, rolls away worry, defeats despondency. So you can move through. You can, if, if you're going self-confidence, that's not just something you're born with. That's not something in your DNA. I don't care what the rest of your family members or ancestors are like. It doesn't matter. You can decide today to increase your self-confidence by doing the things that we're talking about here. Well, people say, gee, I don't want to lose the security I have now. I mean, I hear that from people at every level. If they're making $10 an hour or a million dollars a year, they're saying, I don't want to lose what I have now. It'd be risky to go do something else. Well, security is your ability to produce. You knowing what it is that you do well is the biggest security that you have. Now, there's certainly no security in having a job. And a lot of those people who say, oh, I, don't, I don't want to lose the security I have now are saying that because they get a paycheck every Friday or every other Friday. Uh, that's not a way to have security. You have to sell yourself every single day where the company is asking, is this person really worth what we're paying them? Could we get along without this person? Could we replace this person with somebody we pay less? And a lot of people who thought they had security, whether it was with you know the big banks or Christian publishing organizations or even churches, I mean, General Motors, AT&T, doesn't matter what the organization, a lot of people who thought they had security discovered no, they just had a job that paid them well, and they had an agreement for as long as that was mutually beneficial, but they had no security beyond that at all. Security knows comes from knowing what it is you do that has value. When you're clear on that, you open up a whole lot of possibilities. And then you can decide if you want to have one customer, meaning that would be like a traditional job, or whether you want to have 10 customers or 100. The model is the same. You're providing what it is you do that has value and you can do that. You can replicate that over and over again. If you really understand what it is you have, what you do that has value, then you do have security. Because if you lose a job, you can go down the street. Everybody's hiring these days. You can go down the street and get another job. Or you can decide if I'm a graphic designer. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to really work with a company where 80% of the time they expect me to be doing other things around the office rather than the one thing I really enjoy. Well, you might decide, I want to do what I really enjoy, and I'll go out and get 10 customers where they don't need me full-time, but they need me a few hours a month to do just this one thing I really enjoy. Very legitimate kind of transition. So identify what it is you do extremely well, what is it that you're passionate about, and then what's that economic model for blending those together? I mean, that's the model. That's the model of uh, good to great. Author Jim Collins says, if you integrate those three components, you will be successful. Well, what about the person who says, I just procrastinate? Well, procrastination is another form of fear. It's, it's just kind of a more politically correct way of saying, this scares a tar out of me. I don't think I can do this. You know, and in some ways, procrastination is really a form of anger. I mean, it shows the desire of someone to be controlled and the fear that they cannot be. So they procrastinate as a way to not face up to the idea that they may not really be in control. So here's some tips. Get in the habit of being a doer, not a donter. Don't wait until conditions are perfect. Remember, ideas alone won't bring you any kind of success. Ideas have value only when you create a plan of action and carry it out. And you use action to cure fear, gain confidence, eliminate procrastination. 
So don't wait until it feels right. I mean, amateurs wait until they feel right about it or until they're motivated. Professionals create a plan of action and move into levels of high performance. You don't wait until it feels right. You create a plan and a clear goal. You move toward that. You act your way into new ways of feeling. You know, I used to years ago teach uh, introductory psychology at university level and college freshmen, you know, oftentimes be sitting there, you know, their head down 10 o'clock in the morning. You know, what's up with you, dude? I got up on the wrong side of bed. Well, what's going to change your day? I mean, if you, if you jump out of bed, hold your shoulders back, breathe deeply, you will quickly begin to feel more confident, bold, and enthusiastic. Well, got a lot of input here. On each of these, I've got lots of questions that I've categorized under these, but it would take hours and hours to go through the questions. So I'm just going to stick to these major principles and try to unpack those for us here in just kind of a quick overview. Well, what about this one? I don't have enough time. Not having enough time is just another method of procrastination. I mean, people I know have to deal with working 50 to 60 hours or more, and then maybe traveling back home, you know, the commute as well, or dealing with children and parents. I mean, those are real issues, but we have to ultimately agree that we invest our time in what we consider to be the most important. Get out of the mentality that brags about being too busy. That's not something to brag about. Rather, it indicates someone who is being directed by those around them, a puppet, rather than a mature individual who has mapped out a productive and meaningful life. I mean, we really want to get away from this idea. You know, I'm so busy, and then somehow that's a, a badge of honor. Wow, that's not really a compliment. And when somebody says, gee, I'd love to come, but I just don't have time for that. No, you just simply say it. It's not important enough to me. I'm going to do something else in that time instead. And that's okay, but be realistic about it, rather than trying to camouflage it under this umbrella of I don't have enough time. Here, here's what I often tell uh, people that I work with to do. It's what I call a zero-based time budget. I mean, you, you may be more familiar with creating a financial budget, deciding where all your dollars are going to go. Well, the concept is the same. You start with 168 hours in a week, no more, no less, then decide in advance how you're going to spend or invest those hours. So if you work eight hours a day, deduct those. Then take out sleeping time, time with family, church, serving on committees, whatever it is, just look at it on paper. You know, sometimes I see people try to work in 188 hours of important stuff, but it can't be done. I mean, typically we take out the important things and realize that we still have discretionary time. And of course, as we tell people here, if you can find just 10 to 15 hours a week, and everybody has that, you can really rock and roll in developing a new idea so that in 90 days you can see, hey, this can really happen. So get used to budgeting your time. Keep yourself in the driver's seat. Recognize when you need to say no. I mean, don't just do things because they're godly or humanitarian. And you can't do it all. There's some things you're going to have to say no to. So decide how to protect those precious 168 hours given to you each week. Now, I do. I mean, I, I love my work. I mean, that's pretty obvious, I hope. I love what I do. I'm not looking to reduce my work time down to, you know, Tim Ferriss's famous four hours a week. Not a chance. I, I, I love working and I'm going to work, you know, 50 hours a week pretty consistently. 
my time is very, very strictly categorized. Mondays, I do it all. Now, and I work for myself so I can create my own schedule, but a lot of you do listening as well. And sometimes you get fragmented. You're doing little bits and pieces of all kinds of things and you never really go deep. I like to go deep in the things that I do. So Monday, it's all business issues. So I meet with my team. We strategize. In the afternoons, I have a couple hours devoted to doing forwards and endorsements for books, but it's very clear what I do on Mondays. Tuesdays, all my coaching time. So any coaching clients I'm working with, that's on Tuesdays. My mastermind calls Tuesday. All those interaction with other people on Tuesdays. Wednesday morning, I do what I'm doing right here. Wednesday morning is devoted to doing the podcast. Wednesday afternoon is when I'm available for interviews. It's the only time in the week when I'm available for interviews. Thursday and Friday, deep work. Thursday and Friday, you can look at my schedule. No appointments, no phone calls, no reaching out, connecting. Those are when I do a major project. So those are when I work on manuscripts, a new seminars we're doing, new courses we're going to offer. Think through the strategies for a new online community or the kind of things that we've done in the last few years. That's when I, Thursday, Friday, but I have those times and I'm often working on things there that will not have a payback for maybe two years. It's planning the future where often we get so wrapped up in, I got to do something where I get paid instantly. Now that's the worker mentality. That's an employee mentality. I work for an hour, you owe me on the spot, $20, whatever it happens to be. It's not the long-term thinking that creates millionaires. I mean, Dave Ramsey and I have talked about that a lot, where if somebody is making $15 an hour, they think week to week. Friday, they get a paycheck. Monday, it's all gone. They start over again. They just repeat the cycle. If you're renting to somebody who's in that category, you really ought to collect rent once a week, not once a month, because their time frame is so short. So as people start to make $80,000 a year, they start to think year to year. Next year, we're going to do a Roth IRA. Next year, we're going to go to Disney World, take the family. Next year, we're going to go on a cruise, those kind of things. So they start to think in longer time frames. You talk to somebody who's making half a million dollars, they think in five and 10 year increments. They think much longer periods of time. Now, it's the chicken and the egg then. Well, you think, well, if I was making that kind of money, I could think long to. What if you changed your thinking to be long-term now? What we find is that the money will catch up with you if you really have that long-time perspective. Now, I'm doing a couple of things right now. One is, I mentioned here at the top of this episode, that this is the 10th year anniversary for this podcast. So it gives me an opportunity to look back. Boy, when, I, when podcasting, when I first got on, there were about 40,000 podcasts. As I'm speaking here, there's over 770,000. So it's a venue, it's a medium that has really exploded. But it gives me an opportunity to look back 10 years and forward 10 years. At the same time, I've just completed the 20th anniversary edition of 48 Days to the Work You Love. 20 years ago, teaching that Sunday school class, the first version of 48 Days to the Work You Love. Seems like a blink of an eye, but I'm able to look back 20 years, see the changes in the workplace and the changes in my own life. And it also gives me a framework by which I'm looking forward 20 years, 20 years from now. Wow, I'm excited about that. That'll be 2040. How cool is that? 2040. Maybe I'll do something special in 2048. I got to think through that. But anyway, I'm looking ahead 20 years as well as looking back 20 years. If you start to do that, you'll change your success level dramatically. 
Well, here's another one. You got a couple more here. I've tried before and failed. Well, recognize that failure is a necessary part of the road to success. No one jumps right out of the gate and is successful the first time. Frame it like this. I mean, visualize a high jumper jumping the bar. As long as he clears the bar each time, we don't really know how good that jumper is. So we keep raising the bar. Only when the jumper trips the bar and in essence fails, do we have a measurement of how good he is? Now think about that. Was that really failure? Well, it gives us a realistic measurement of how good he is. If you always succeed, you don't really know what's possible for you. It's only when you fail that you then have some kind of a measurement. And incidentally, I typically don't use that word. I did an interview this week and a young man was asking me about when I failed. And I said, you know what? I, I don't frame anything I've ever done as failure. Now, have I had experiences where other people looking in would call it that? Yeah, I'm sure I have. But I look at it as there are only two options. Either I win or I learn. That's the only two options that I have. So when we look around, we see a lot of people who had opportunity to learn. Absolutely. They can keep learning. Well, you know, one of the things there, I've tried before and failed, I hear from people who assume they're too old to try anything anymore. And I wonder, what age is that? When do you decide to just kind of cruise on into the grave? I mean, we hear stories like Colonel Harlan Sanders, you know, got his first social security check at age 65. He got a check for $103. That was for a month. And he thought to himself, either I can decide to live on this $103 a month for the rest of my life, or I can take a fresh look at what I have to offer that has value. He put his little recipe together for cooking chicken and started crossing the country visiting restaurants, trying to get them to pay him five cents per chicken that they cooked with his recipe. I mean, pretty creative idea. I love how he did that. He visited over a thousand restaurants before he found one to agree to such a novel idea. And then as we say, the rest is history. But he was 65 and broke, really had nothing when he started the idea that made him a millionaire many times over. You know, in my own story, you know, a lot of people assume that, well, I just you know, always had the opportunities, good opportunities that came my way. Well, Probably not. You know, I was raised as a poor farm kid, very poor farm kid. I remember when we bought our first cow, one cow, milked it by hand. Continued from there. My dad just eked out a living as a farmer. Well, going on from that, I went on to college to kind of improve my options. And I've always done entrepreneurial things. Never had a real job. But, you know, I've had my bumps along the way in doing that. And one of the major bumps that I share openly in my books is... When I had a business, a health and fitness center, sold it to public auction, thought I'd just at least walk away with a shirt on my back. And instead of doing that, I woke up the next morning and realized that I was about $400,000 in debt. So it took a long time to walk out of that. And it was compounded because some of that debt, over 100000 was to the IRS. They're not very forgiving about young entrepreneurs making those kind of mistakes. So that got very, very complicated with interest penalties, it got very, very complicated. It took me 12 years to walk out of that. 12 years after that, I was back to zero. I woke up, I was so excited. My net worth was zero. You know how old I was? I was 53 years old. My net worth was zero at 53 because of some of the mistakes I had made along the way. Well, <laughs> life has been pretty good since then because of what I learned 
Again, it was not a failure. It was because I learned some things that have been invaluable and helping me move forward. Well, one of the things that I, I have to acknowledge in that is the support of those closest to me. Now, I know that's another big issue, and I'll kind of end with this one. You know, having the support of people around you is really, really important. In our Eagles community, we say you have to have the right idea, the right mindset, and the right network. Make sure you're surrounding yourself with people who believe in you, who are going to cheer you on. Now, and some of the things I've described there myself, wow, when I had somebody just this week, again, in an interview, ask me, says, Dan, what do you consider your biggest success? I've had books that have been you know, New York Times bestsellers, some other things that if you're looking at the financial data, you know, are pretty impressive, I guess. I said, oh, without question, my biggest success is my marriage. I don't want to sound cheesy about that, but I really have no way of guessing what my life would be like without the woman that I married. Moved her out of her mom's house when she was 17 years old. My gosh, we were kids. We got married really young. Had kids, just went on from there. Wow, what an amazing journey we've had together. So by all means, you know, if you were if you were to rank my personal relationships and we had to give them a dollar value like we tend to do with everything, gee, we don't know how successful somebody is. Well, you know, have they achieved millionaire status? You know, how big is their house? What kind of cars they drive? You know, those are just those are chump change kind of things. What I look at is if I were to have to put a dollar amount on my closest relationships, I'm a billionaire. Wow. I mean, that, that makes me excited just to think about it, just to verbalize it like that. But those are the things that really are the foundation for all the incidental things that I get to do in terms of work and business. Now, I know that, you know, that can be a big deal for people. And I grieve with a lot of people who don't have that in place. I don't have easy solutions for that but be very careful about the relationship, but then treat the relationships with the same kind of tender, loving care that you would a business idea. We invest time and energy and care and concern in that. Golly, do the same thing in your marriage. It'll pay off big benefits. Well, we, we have lots of other questions. My goodness, lots of other questions. I struggle with apathy when I start to do anything new. I mean, I know we hear those again and again, but I hope this has been helpful. We'll list some of these things in the show notes so you can kind of go back and refer to them, the major categories. But again, I don't care what it is. If we haven't touched on it directly, it's probably related in some way. And certainly there is a solution. I am so positive that no matter what it is, it may be a physical limitation that you have. Again, unfortunate, but can you move past it? My goodness, we have so many opportunities ideas, so many examples of where that's happened. Sometimes the major disasters, even, you know, when we see a young guy get caught in a mountain, he has to cut his own arm off. Well, I mean, that actually happened. You know the story. And he went on, he's a major motivational speaker. And uh, we certainly wouldn't consider that a happy incident. But sometimes the challenges are what break us through to our greatest successes. Well, I hope you have enjoyed uh, listening in on this. This is one that we'll kind of archive to encourage people along the way. Again, thank you for being part of this group where we are, in fact, moving forward where we know without any shadow of a doubt, doubt we can 
Take ideas, turn them into reality. In today's environment, it's just never been easier. The obstacles have been removed. If you want to write a book, there's nothing that can stop you. If you want to start a business, boom, there's no reason you can't do that. I mean, there, no matter what it is that you'd like to do, that you'd like to move into, if you want to get a better job, wow, now's a wonderful time to do that. Companies are begging for people who really clearly understand what it is they do well. So this introspection, going through these things that hold you back, have application, whether it's in a relationship, in a job you have, wanting to start your own business, develop your creativity, no matter what it is. If you can move past these personal things, and again, that's my premise in 48 Days to the Work You Love, 85% of the process of moving forward with confidence is looking inward first. Knowing what it is that's unique about you will give you then the confidence that you're moving in the right direction. So thanks for being, again, part of this organization. If you got a question or success story, shoot that into me at askdan at 48days.com. And again, my gratitude is unbounded for living this out together with you, people who know we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.